So my name is Enora Burns, and I'm a resident of Denver, Colorado, and we're standing out on my street. It's a residential street. The street Nora lives on is quiet. It's not really a street that you take to get from one place to another. I met Nora on this street recently so she could tell me a story of something that happened to her. And actually, it's something that happened to a lot of Coloradans in the last year. Last year, on June 4th, on this beautiful spring afternoon, I was prepping to go out to my first post vaccination gathering, you know, since this pandemic began, where I was going to go see more than four people at one time. It was very exciting. Yeah, very. <laughs> and um, I came out to my car to run some pre-party errands, and my car wasn't on the street. At first, she wasn't worried. And I thought, like many of us do, oh, I must have just parked in a different spot, right? Like, so I go to the secondary spot where I would park and nothing, and then I start clicking the clicker to see if I can get the horn to go off and nothing's going off and I walk up and down the street and it's not here. And I'm like, I can't, my car's been stolen. I'm like, I can't believe, like who steals a Hyundai Santa Fe? And you can imagine what happened next. Nora went home to call the police, her insurance company. She had to cancel a credit card that was in the car. Of course she missed that party. Such a bummer. And that was just the start of things. It was exhausting. It was just exhausting. And dealing with the insurance company was exhausting and stressful and not knowing, you know, when it would be resolved. Um, Also had a lot of fear that came out. So I became really quite paranoid about locking my house um, and keeping things. I ordered cameras, you know, to keep an eye on things. But realizing that and the insecurity that came with that was was very stressful. It took weeks of borrowing friends' cars and scrambling to get around before her insurance finally paid out and she could buy a used replacement vehicle. And then finally, a month after the Santa Fe was stolen, she heard from the auto theft task force investigators that they had found her car. An officer drove her out to the impound lot to check it out. When he opened up the back of the car as the hatch lid, we both took a step back, like in unison without a plan, because the smell that came out of that car was so dense and thick with the smell of drugs and sweat and disgusting. Police did eventually arrest a bunch of people for stealing her car and others. They were targeting Kias and Hondas, allegedly, as part of a small-time crime ring that called itself The Sopranos. Seriously? Yes. Car thefts have taken off in Colorado in the last couple years. In fact, it's worse here per capita than almost anywhere else in the country. The growth, I mean. And Nora was one of 37,000 Coloradans who had her car stolen last year. That is like the entire population of Lafayette or Inglewood. The other amazing thing is the number of times when you say, my car was stolen, in a group of people, the number of people who say, oh, mine too. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin blames it in part on some changes to state law. I think that we see dramatic increases statewide starting in 2014, uh, which coincides with legislation, uh, House Bill 141266. That law reduced the charges and therefore the potential penalties for car theft in some cases. It's just one of dozens of bills lawmakers have passed in the last decade or so in an effort to reform the justice system, trying to move away from mass incarceration and make things more equitable. But with crime rates rising and an election year well underway, those reforms are coming under new scrutiny in what's an increasingly partisan fight. 
Some conservatives and cops say that it's time to reassess a decade of changes to the criminal justice system. Liberals and reformers say that it's unfair, it's political. It's an attack on a reform movement that has had bipartisan support and achieved many of its goals. Without a doubt, it's already changed how lawmakers here in the Capitol are talking about criminal justice and public safety. This is Purplish from CPR News. It's a show about Colorado politics and policy. I'm your host today, Andrew Kenny, and with me this episode is CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. Hi, Andy. Hello. So tell us, what are we going to talk about today exactly? You know, there are a lot of accusations being thrown around about how various laws passed in the last decade may be contributing to the rise in crime in Colorado. So we, you and me, wanted to sort out what exactly is happening with crime, Mm -hmm. which policies are getting blamed for the crime, and where this is all going. And on top of all that, we're going to tackle the politics of this stuff. As I just mentioned, midterm elections coming up, Republicans hoping that voters will hold Democrats to blame for the crime situation. And on the other side, there's this question among reformers, among Democrats in particular, of what do they do now? How do they balance looking responsive to genuine public concerns about crime while not backsliding and erasing some of the criminal justice reforms that many of their voters have valued and that they argue have done really good things to reduce the harms of mass incarceration? But before we get to that, let's start with some basic context about what is actually happening with crime in Colorado. Like you said, crime up across the country in the last two years or so, but you found the numbers are worse in Colorado. Yes, it was the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Analysis found this. Um, Hmm. Since 2019, Colorado's crime in most major categories has gone up. They looked at 2019 and they looked at 2021 as Mm -hmm. comparisons. So not really the growth over two years. They just looked at a year and then they looked at a year two years later. Um, Mm. In that analysis, Colorado's murder rate went up 47 percent. Motor vehicle theft is up 86 percent. One year analysis done between 2019 and 2020, so a couple years ago, found that Colorado had the fourth highest increase in all crimes in the country. That's Hmm. just below Pennsylvania, South Dakota, and Utah. That's according to the FBI. So I think this notion that I've heard from some people that crime is up everywhere, Colorado isn't different. You know, in this one-year analysis, that's not exactly true. Actually, most states' crime went down, like all crimes, but Colorado was one of the states that went up. We're a long way from knowing whether this is the beginning of some sustained trend, but that's not stopping folks from talking about what is the proper legislative response. Where do we go from here with the state's politics and with its laws when it comes to crime, public safety, and criminal justice? And I'll say just reporting in this space, not the political space per se, but just Mm -hmm. the criminal justice space, anyone who'd say they know exactly why crime is going up, I would distrust immediately. (laughs) Mm, Well, that might put you and some politicians in conflict, but (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) So um, you, as you were just alluding to, you spent a lot of your time on this story talking to people within law enforcement, for one thing, uh, police chiefs, district attorneys. What have they told you? What are they seeing? Well, as I just prefaced, there doesn't seem to be a single reason. I think, you know, in general, life and social fabrics 
were really disrupted, yeah. obviously, in the last few years. Um, and that has to play some role. You know, drug treatment and mental health support centers were shuttered. Hmm. Schools were closed. I think that I have a personal theory that that's contributed a lot to juvenile crime going up now. Lots of people got laid off. I'll also mention, and this is a little dicey and I'm not blaming this for increased crime rates, but I will say that mm-hmm. jail populations decreased because of the pandemic. You know, at the time, sheriffs were letting people out of jail because they didn't want people in crowded spaces spreading of deadly disease. Um, And that was before vaccination. So Mm -hmm. people were dying. Sheriff's deputies were also dying. So I think at the time there was a decision that they weren't going to hold people pretrial in crowded spaces if they weren't a public safety risk. And they let a lot of people out. You know, the other thing I want to mention, and I did some reporting around this, right after the George Floyd protests, policing slowed down significantly across the state. There were not as many stops. There were not as many patrols. Partly that was the pandemic. Partly police slowed down their operations a little bit in the name of sort of reckoning on how police should do their job. Hmm. There was also a really big unemployment rate for a long time. I, I just don't think we can discount all of what happened in the world in the last two years. Okay, Um, so that's the big picture. That's a big picture, right. But I think other people, law enforcement leaders, would say this House bill really did contribute to this thing. And, I, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, you mean they're blaming specific laws that have passed over the years. We started the episode actually with a lead into one example of that. It's the question of how the law treats people accused of stealing cars. That's correct. There was a law change in 2014 that amended the charges, you'd have a lesser charge if you Hmm. stole a cheaper car versus an expensive one, a Honda Hmm. Civic versus a Lexus. And Denver's police chief, Paul Pazin, is really big on the idea that this actually led to people stealing more cars. I think that we see dramatic increases statewide starting in 2014, uh, which coincides with legislation, uh, House Bill 141266. And, you know, I actually pushed him on this. I said to him, you know, Chief Pazin, you know more auto thieves than I do. I've, I've never met somebody who's ever stolen a car. And he joked and he said, I've, o- I've only met them professionally, not personally. Mm. Um, but I said, you know, tell me, does an auto thief know about house, this House Bill 2014 that changes penalties? Like, are you really seriously telling me that as somebody who wants to go steal Nora's Hyundai Santa Fe is going to actually make a different decision because he knows that he might be charged with a misdemeanor versus a felony, or he might be able to plead down to a misdemeanor. It starts as a felony and it goes down to a misdemeanor one or something. Yeah, yeah. And Pazin says, yes, Hmm. he actually believes that, especially when you're talking about criminal networks, people who do this for an enterprise, which is actually, yeah, the Sopranos, which is actually the Sopranos. They know the different penalties and they know what they can get away with. And people make decisions that way. Like I know people would argue with that, but he does believe that full stop. Okay, so he's making this point that maybe this specific point in this 2014 law enabled more car thefts, which is terrible for the people that go through it, damaging, scary. But what's his bigger point? Why does why does this factor into crime writ large? Well, he he directly addresses that, so I'll let him say it here. Often we dismiss auto theft as joyriding, and that's not the case. Stolen cars are often used in shootings, in robberies, in burglaries, and uh, an area where folks don't seem to realize the impact is hit and run serious bodily injury. So 
I know people are going to be hearing this police chief talking about this and they'll either think that he has like the most authoritative perspective on it or they're going to doubt him because, you know, he's got his own vested interest in this stuff. What role is Pazin, this Denver police chief, actually playing in this bigger statewide policy debate? What What is he doing? Well, I'll just give you a tiny bit of context about Pazin. I was talking to another reporter who covers this beat in a competitor news organization last uh-huh. week. We joke that Pazin is one of the most accessible police chiefs. He will give interviews if you ask. Um, he often is very careful in those interviews. I'm not hmm. going to say he doesn't say anything. He does, but he is really a careful person. And sometimes it's hard to get a real juicy quote out of the guy. <laughs> that has changed. That has significantly changed in the last Hmm. couple of months. He is out there on a crusade, walking around with reams of data about state crime rates. Interestingly, he doesn't focus much on Denver's crime rates. He talks Mm -hmm. a lot about the state, probably so he can go to county commissioners and state commissions and people won't dismiss, oh, well, that's just the big city. Here in Weld County, we have nobody ever stealing cars. Mm -hmm. He he brings this data around and he's talking a lot about this. I mean, like, do you think he's Passing the buck? Is this law enforcement just pointing fingers at politicians and trying to punish them for these reforms? Or is it like legit concerns being raised here? Well, he has a list of things he thinks has contributed to this. So his agenda would be, I think, to go to powerful people, Mm -hmm. the governor's office, you know, commissions that write bills that become laws and say, you guys have passed things in the last decade that's made my city, your city, the whole state overall, a lesser place to live. So please hmm. go fix these things. Now, you know, I think, like I said, I think he's simplifying it a little by saying it's this law or that law. But, um, you know, he really does believe it. He has done his research. Okay. He has shown that these laws passed at this time and this crime went up at this exact year. Hmm. Um, so it's interesting. It's it's more research than I have seen reported from the politicians um, and some of the other people at the legislature, the people right, well, you've gotten to interview, Andy. <laughs> well, yeah, some of those have been a little bit lacking. Some of those have been more informed. But let's let's give Pays in his moment. What is the other stuff that he's talking about besides car theft? Because obviously this increase in crime goes a lot further beyond just car theft. What else is he talking about? So he has a short list of things that he thinks has contributed to the crime raids. Um, and he's also really concerned about fentanyl. Hmm. Fentanyl and methamphetamine seizures went up fourfold in a single year by the Mm. uh, Colorado State Patrol. Actually, interesting little factoid, the State Patrol over several years has pulled more drugs off the highways in Colorado than any other State Mm. Patrol in the country not adjusted for population. Number two is California. So that's a a lot of drugs. That could just speak to their enforcement mechanisms. But it's still interesting because Colorado isn't that big. Um, And also fentanyl overdose deaths, according to the CDC, went up more in Colorado than any other state in the country except Alaska between 2015 and 2021. So you've heard of Union Station, right, Andy? I walk through it every weekday, actually. (laughs) Union Station has become, in Denver, a little bit of a microcosm for the fentanyl crisis. Hmm. Um, You know, there have have been, in the last um, four months or five months, several hundred people arrested at Union Station for drug possession, on outstanding warrants, for all sorts of things. I see a lot more cops when I walk through there, too. Like yes, fence, yes. roped off doors, guards on the bathrooms. It, yeah, they're taking it. Yeah, they're mad about it. Hancock <laughs> talked about it um, at his State of the City speech. 
And all of these people would cite one law that passed in 2019 as probably very much hurting the goal in having fewer fentanyl deaths in the state. And that law lowered the penalty for having four grams or less of nearly all drugs from a felony to a misdemeanor. So it lowered the charges for a lot of drug possession, uh, not just fentanyl, but that's what Denver's mayor and police chief are blaming in part for fentanyl deaths. Yeah, I want to say in part because I think they would also blame cartels and and just the increase in fentanyl coming across the border from Mexico. But yes, they think this law has really exacerbated the addiction crises in the state. What we're seeing, particularly at Union Station, is the low-level drug dealers have figured out that if I run around with 39 pills, or roughly 3.9 grams of fentanyl, that that's in the misdemeanor realm. And so uh, the leverage that is necessary to address that low-level dealer has been removed. They know that there are little to no consequences since this has been moved into the misdemeanor realm. That law has become a really big topic of conversation at the Capitol. And some of the sponsors of that bill are fighting back. They're saying it's not a fair criticism. Um, Republicans like Shane Sandridge, Democrats like Representative Leslie Harrod are saying that, yeah, you know, you can possess up to that amount and only get a misdemeanor. But if you're dealing drugs, like police can still charge you with possession with intent to distribute, which is a felony. Is it possible to just target dealers? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is possible to target high-level dealers. If you have bags of pure fentanyl, you are a dealer, and it's not going to take much to prove that case, you know? And so they're saying, police, do your job, prosecutors, do your job, and if you think somebody's a dealer, then prove that they're dealing. But regardless, the overall fentanyl crisis, the tragic overdose deaths, apparently, of five people in Commerce City last month, Those are all kind of combining with concerns about this law to really create pressure to address it one way or another. We're going to see a fentanyl-related bill here in the Capitol. On the prosecution front, um, I do know that DAs are starting to take a different tact on this already without any movement at the legislature. Hmm. Um, They're actually starting to charge these uh, dealers and distributors with homicide if they can connect a pill to a dealer that killed someone. Mm. Um, A case in Lafayette was just filed from the Boulder DA. He was charged with manslaughter because he sold two pills to a boyfriend and a girlfriend. The girlfriend died in her sleep. Mm. Um, The feds are also cracking down on this. A guy last week in Fort Collins, a 45-year-old man in Fort Collins, was just sentenced to 175 months in prison for selling a pill that resulted in death. Okay, so past the blame game, as some have called it, over that 2019 law, the question now is what do they do? I've heard suggestions from some Republicans, uh, some political candidates that, you know, they want to go back and repeal parts of that 2019 law and crack down on mere possession. On the other hand, what I'm hearing more realistically from both district attorneys and Democrats is that they're working on something that would try to target distributors by beefing up the portion of the law that only applies when you can prove that intent to distribute. They're also at the same time trying to gear up a public health response to this fentanyl crisis. Here's how Representative Mike Weissman described it. Everyone here at the Capitol is very aware of the risks, the public health and safety risks posed by fentanyl. And we do need to make more treatment capacity available to help people 
break the addiction, whether it's fentanyl or some other synthetic opioid or anything else for that matter, and get back on with their lives and be able to work and engage with their family and their friends. And, you know, overall, the people that worked on that 2019 bill, they say that it was not a mistake, that they didn't make some oversight where they accidentally allowed you to possess huge amounts of fentanyl. They are saying again that that they were trying to de-felonize that basic possession, stop putting users in jail. And they're arguing that, you know, okay, we can still focus on distributors. We didn't affect that with our law. We can talk more about it now. That's true. And I think some of the reforms that you've talked about that that might go into the reform, the the new law, the new fentanyl law, that includes fentanyl testing strips. I, I think yeah, the it's proposal. probably a good yeah, it's probably a good public safety thing to do because mm. a, a number of people, including those five people who die in Commerce City, don't know they're taking fentanyl. They're not addicted to fentanyl. They don't want fentanyl. They bought cocaine. They bought uh, oxycodone. They yeah. they bought, um, I mean Xanax. And they're actually getting fentanyl. I mean, I know that the DA up in in Commerce City who was on the scene of the five people who died uh, called it like a homicide scene. They just dropped dead where they were. They thought they were doing cocaine. There were lines and and mirrors and razors. And they just dropped dead. There was a baby sleeping in another room. They didn't Mm -hmm. know. They didn't even have time to call for help. So if they would have had a fentanyl testing strip before they would have taken that, that might have saved all of their lives. So to recap quickly, we got this big, messy increase in crime that we're never going to know the true, true overall cause of whatever. But Denver's police chief and others do have a handful of laws that they think are at least contributing. One of them is the one that reduces the charges for possessing a small amount of a drug from a felony to a misdemeanor. Another is this law that reduced the penalty for stealing some cars for stealing cheaper cars. Is there anything else? What else is law enforcement complaining about? Well, one of the things I've heard over and over again is that personal recognizance bonds is making Colorado less safe. What are those? So it's going to court and being booked in jail and then you have your first court appearance and it's being held. It's either you either have a cash bond or you have to post 500 or 5000 or $50,000 mm-hmm. or you're let out on your own personal recognizance, which means the judge trusts you to go out and live your life and then come back for your future court date. Yeah, so they don't have to hold you in jail until your trial. Correct. So Chief Payson's gotten really interested in this, and he does believe that the increase in PR bonds is leading to more crime, but he admits it's not very transparent to go track that down. You can't, Mm. it's hard to follow someone through the system on Mm. whether they're going to go commit more crimes. We need all of the cases to be taken serious like that because we have uh, significant dealers that are let out of jail on PR bonds, and that's not okay. Well, I know that reformers would push back on that in a number of ways, um, which we'll get to later. But first of all, I want to ask is like, is that even the result of anything the legislature did? Because I've heard politicians blaming the legislature for this. Is that even accurate? So this is complicated. Um, No. (laughs) I know this is complicated. In 2019, a law passed that basically requires judges not to to put cash bonds on people accused of very low-level municipal petty mm. crimes. Those are small things. Those are like nuisance violations, shoplifting, pretty minor shoplifting, yeah. maybe very low-level assault. And that was a bipartisan law because I think there was an effort that there was there was this whole notion that there were a lot of people, poor people, sitting in jail for 
low-level, nonviolent crimes. Before they've been to trial. Right. I mean, data shows that two, two-thirds, three-quarters of people in jail sitting there right now are all pretrial. So, wow. But this was—I mean, they were concerned that some of these people really were charged with not very serious things, and they shouldn't just be sitting there um, because they can't. They had no ability to pay. Yeah. So that is a law that mentions PR bonds as a requirement. Um, that's the only thing that has passed that really sort of mandates PR bonds. And there is no stolen car that would fit into a municipal crime. So right. even if a car was worth $40, it would not, you would not be charged with a petty crime on if you stole that. So yeah. it's when, when somebody at the legislature says, well, this person was out stealing a million cars and got let out on a PR bond, that might actually be true. A judge may, may, have, may have made that decision. But there was nothing in the legislature that compelled the judge to do that. So I, I think we need to have some truth squatting on that. Yeah, I, I think that is one of those issues that is playing out differently outside of the building on the campaign trail for political candidates who have pretty explicitly said, yeah, the legislature passed PR bond laws. Um, you know, I heard that from Heidi Ganahl, she's a Republican candidate for governor, and then she later kind of backpedaled and said she was referring more generally to reform efforts. But, you know, then I asked Republican Senator John Cook, who's a former sheriff and worked on a ton of justice bills, and he said that, yeah, those changes are much more so a result of local policy of judges, but he still did blame Democrats. I can point to some other things like Democrats spending a lot of money on district attorney races, liberal DAs who now then don't pursue cash bonds. They let people out repeatedly on PR bonds, and so they continue to commit crimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, DAs can definitely ask for bond or not bond. I've sat in lots of hearings where they say, yes, Your Honor, we're going to ask for a $5,000 bond because we think this person has a history of stealing cars, and we're worried that he's going to go do it again. And a public yeah. defender is going to push back and say, this person has a family and a job and has a place to go, and I think that PR bond is sufficient, and the judge decides that. So, mm. you know, do some of the liberal DAs push for more PR bonds than the more conservative DAs? I've never done a scientific analysis, but it wouldn't surprise me. Well, I think that that'll be a big question for the future. Democrats have wanted to go further on reforming that use of cash bail um, and replacing it with some kind of, you know, assessment of whether the person is a risk rather than whether they can pay cash. But, you know, that bill failed last year. It's not coming back this year. Um, that'll be a question for the future. So, okay, before we move on to the political side of this debate, since we are unfortunately a politics show, kidding, <laughs> let's just take a moment and make sure that we're clear on what the laws and policies were that are at the heart of this discussion. Quick recap, go. They, they really fall into two major categories. It's laws that reduce the penalties for some crimes, like reducing the charges for stealing cheaper cars mm -hmm. or possessing small amounts of drugs. And it's laws and policies that lead to people who've been arrested getting out of jail more quickly and without cash bail. And the thing that links both of them in the minds of law enforcement is that it removes the tools and penalties that we're actually working to keep people from committing crimes. You know, I think law enforcement people believe in this carrot stick approach. If you're a criminal justice reformer or a harm reduction person in a drug treatment center, you would say carrot and stick does not work. It didn't work in the 80s. It doesn't work in the 90s. It's not going to work now. Yeah, it's taking away some of the power of police and prosecutors in the interest of people's civil rights. And now we're debating the effects of that. Right. Or if, you know, lessening the power of 
police and prosecutors contributes to a public safety crisis. So for my piece of all this, I've been digging into where some of those law changes came from, what the goals were for reformers, and kind of what's happened to the politics of all this stuff and how they've been caught up in this election year lately. And, you know, the the politics are pretty brutal. I talked to Christy Burton-Brown, she's the chair of the Republican Party here in Colorado, and like a lot of candidates are going to do this year, she put the blame for all this public safety crime stuff right on Democrats. I mean, I think the policies the Democrats have passed in the legislature are exactly the reason crime is rising so high in Colorado. And Republicans are, you know, not hesitating to, in some cases, say that actions taken by Democrats, even if they were bipartisan, are responsible for deaths even. And of course, Democrats are responding. You know, you're hearing Governor Jared Polis talk a lot about public safety. Maybe not quite as much as he talks about, quote, saving people money. But he did make this really bold promise during his State of the State address. You know, I've never been one to shy away from ambitious goals, which is why I want to spend the next five years making Colorado one of the top 10 safest states in the country. Let's make it so. So this is a pretty bold promise from our governor. But, you know, my old retired political roots would say this is an election year. This is exactly the kind of bread and butter issue candidates talk about because voters care about it. They can feel when, you know, more cars are being sold in their neighborhoods, more catalytic converters are being sold in their neighborhoods, there are more broken windows and businesses in their neighborhoods. And I think we've even seen this with Mayor Hancock and and even Pazin, right? Hmm. They've become completely unshackled on this front. They have probably done some internal polling or something, and they've seen that voters don't care if they're arresting 100 people a day at Union Station. Actually, people are happy they're arresting 100 people a day at Union Station. They want to go down and have drinks and dinner, and they don't want to see someone smoking fentanyl. That's a political reality that I feel like has shown up in some internal polling for even Democrats. And so there is a movement and a push right now. It's a pendulum, really. If you talk to people who've been doing this for decades, they'll say this happens when crime rates increase. People talk about safety and public safety. And there's a reason why even some of the most liberal and progressive Democrats at the legislature are not introducing their bills for bail reform right now. Yeah, Republicans have even been grousing kind of about how Democrats are stealing the thunder on their public safety issue. Um, And, you know, they're maybe they're watching with some satisfaction, I guess, as the messaging starts to change. Here's Senator John Cook again. Well, even Democrats can read polls and they know that's not popular. And so now we're working together on crime issues. Now, we still have disagreements on, you know, some things, but they're softening the stance on law enforcement issues as far as supporting law enforcement. And I want to just point out, John Cook has been a voter of a lot of these bills. And he supported, you know, police reform a few years ago. He's supported misdemeanor reform. I think we need to just say that you know, they're they're riding the, the wave and the pendulum right now, too. These were bipartisan bills, and Republicans didn't disagree with them at the time. I mean, some Republicans did, but not all of them. Point taken. Um, in the meantime, you know, reformers, though, the people that have worked so hard on these bills over the last decade to change how the criminal justice system works are not giving up. Like you alluded to, they are worried, though, that what was this fairly bipartisan effort is going to get swamped now, that there'll be less support for it. 
lawmakers are going to worry about being politically vulnerable and that just in general, you know, it's going to be much harder to do this work from here on out. Here's Leslie Herod again. I just think we have to move away from politics and cut through the rhetoric. I'm somewhat disappointed uh, in folks who are really politicizing this conversation when they have been on the side of reform every other year. Um, and it's because folks feel like it is a good opportunity and, and politically advantageous for them to push a narrative that is false and negative. Uh, that's not going to help anyone. And if we really want to save lives, we need to roll up our sleeves and get this job done together. I apologize for the background noise there. She was on the chamber floor. But yeah, you heard her making that point that some Republicans, quite a few, worked with Democrats on these issues over the years. And now it's the question of, well, are you going to help anymore? Or where is this all going? So, Andy, since you're covering these people every day (laughs) under the Gold Dome, are they going to do a lot of reforms this year? There are some smaller things. Um, You know, there's something uh, from Senator Julie Gonzalez addressing how to handle some juvenile crime. I think it's for 10 to 12 year olds. But overall, you know, a few lawmakers acknowledge this is not going to be the year of big reforms. You know, some of the cash and bail stuff, like we said earlier, is is not coming back for now. I think people are concerned about crime and safety in our communities. Um, And I think right now it would be an inopportune time to push forward a massive um, criminal justice agenda when we know we have to play defense on the good policies that we passed recently. Um, That doesn't mean we should stop the work at all. It just, we might shift from new policies to how those policies are implemented. You know, I would say that the reformers like Herod and some of the other lawmakers and the groups, the many, many, many groups who've been working this in this in these trenches for the last decade, this is the first time that I can remember covering this over several years that the wind is they're really ha- they have there's a headwind right now and it's the crime rates. They haven't mm. had this obstacle before, you yeah. know, and and it's an interesting test to the entire movement that's funded with lots and lots of private dollars and philanthropic contributions to create these criminal justice reform groups. And that's finally one like grassroots support. It took a very long time for that message to break through. A long time. I would say the criminal justice reform efforts have been going on for decades, but the last 10 years has been really active and Colorado has yeah. become a national leader on a lot of reforms. I mean, I have attended conferences and people ask what it's like to cover it here because there's, it's known about here. This wow. is the first time there's been this kind of a headwind. There's been, you know, the murder rate is up 47% in two years. It's going to give everybody pause, even if it has nothing to do with the reforms that were passed at the legislature. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that basically what you'll see is that for now, Democrats will change their focus. They're going to talk about public health, the causes of crime, how to stop it in the first place. And we'll see, you know, in the next few years, does this change in crime rates continue? And what does it mean to try to get more criminal justice reform done when you're not in that world of low and stable crime rates? So we've covered lots and lots of ground here on a complicated issue with a lot of politics in it. Before we wrap up, let's just go over those big takeaways again. Yes. The first is probably that crime is going up in Colorado. Um, In the last two years, it's gone up significantly, but it's been going up since 2016. And it's gone up faster and in a worse way over the course of a few years than in most places in the country. And all the reasons that it's happening are, of course, complicated, murky, maybe indeterminable. But there are people involved in enforcing the law and Republican politicians, especially, who say that recent changes are part of the problem. 
Those laws include things like reducing penalties for some car thefts, dropping a lot of drug possession charges from felonies to misdemeanors, and letting more people out of jail on PR bonds. That takes us from what's happening on the streets to what's happening in the state capitol, where lawmakers are trying to figure out whether to change the state's approach to criminal justice or what they can do to address crime and public safety. Criminal justice reformers are worried this whole situation, the crime rates, would lead to this major pendulum swing that might undo a decade of work and and worse, would usher in a whole new era of mass incarceration and jail overcrowding and tough-on-crime policies that hurt lots and lots and lots of people, disproportionately people of color and poor people. And I think law enforcement are worried that You know, they just don't have any answers right this minute on why they're responding to so many homicides on a given Friday night. They want Mm. to solve this problem, and I think they're earnest about that, and I I believe them too. Making this all the more fraught is the fact that we have an election coming up in a matter of months. There's a political opportunity here for Republicans to make public safety their issue, convince voters that Democrats can't be trusted on it. There's this question of what does that mean for a reform effort that has been more bipartisan than a lot of big stuff at the legislature. Where will it go from here? Which is to say, as heated as the conversation's been so far, we probably haven't seen anything yet. Afraid not. Hey, so Allison, you told the story earlier of Nora who got her stolen car back, but it was a pretty wild story about how she actually did that, right? It is, and, and, and the Sopranos notwithstanding, I think the most interesting part of all of this is that she solved her own crime, which is that she had a Discover credit card in the console that was a little maxed out. Uh-huh. Um, I'll just say that. And she'd put it there to kind of remind herself she wasn't going to use that until she made the payment on it. So she put it in the console. Somebody steals the car, goes to 7-Eleven, I think a mile or two from her house, and tries to use that card. She gets huh. a ping from Discover uh-huh. that her card had not had been rejected. Because it think, was maxed out. Because it was maxed out, right? She didn't think much of it at the time until she realized her car was stolen and the person who tried to use it was the thief of the car. Huh. So she goes down to the 7-Eleven and says, do you happen to have any surveillance of this, you know, this thing that happened at 2.25 p.m.? I mean, you know, because uh-huh. Discover pings her immediately, so she has the timestamp. And it turns out 7-Eleven says, oh, yeah, every candy bar in this store is under 24-hour surveillance at all times. Uh. And so she sits there with a very nice, she describes very nice patient manager of 7-Eleven and watches surveillance video. And he allowed her to take pictures and video from her own cell phone of his surveillance. Uh She uploads that onto a Facebook page for auto thief victims, auto theft victims, I'm sorry. And the Colorado Auto Theft Task Force investigators, like, patrol that Facebook page all the time. And this Uh guy saw the picture that she uploaded from her phone and was like, (laughs) I know that guy. What? He steals cars. I know that guy. And there we are. And the car is... So they went to the guy and they got her car back? They, yeah. I mean, I think it was a little bit, you know, a few more weeks from there of trying to find this all out. And then it it turns out it was part of this bigger crime ring. Wow. So the maxed out card helped get the footage, helped crack the case. Right. So the, I guess, you know, the the theory would be don't ever leave a credit card in your car. It's not (laughs) actually very safe. But it did, in this case, help her know that, 
you know, this person went to 7-Eleven and helped her solve her crime and, and get her car back, which, of course, she didn't end up taking back because of the meth damage. So, wow. um, but yes, she testified in front of the grand jury. There was an indictment of the screen ring. She has a new used car, not the same model because she says those were easy to steal. And uh, she's now living her life. Wow. So we'll be a long time talking about crime and criminal justice, but Nora solved her own problem in the meantime. Nora solved her own problem. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Andrew Kenny with my colleague, Allison Sherry. Purplish is edited by Megan Verlee and produced by Pedro Lumbrano. This show will be back in your podcast feeds in two weeks. So if you're not already following, be sure to sign up and make sure you don't miss it. You can email us at purplish at CPR.org. This is Purplish from CPR News.